Bibles once again and turn to Ruth. Ruth chapter 1 in verse 6. Ruth chapter 1 in verse 6. Last week we looked at misery in Moab. And this week we're going to look at blessing in returning to Bethlehem. And we see that in verses 6 through 18. You know, as I read God's Word, I am continually amazed as I observe Him sovereignly and providentially working behind the scenes to accomplish His purposes. And Ruth is no different here. In today's text, we will see a highlight of this very thing, which begins a very bright future. And so I want you to follow along as I read those verses, verses 6 to 18. Then she, that is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight... And also bear sons. Would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. Then she said, that is Naomi... Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You know, with that connecting word then, which begins verse 6, the author here was transitioning from Moab Toward Bethlehem. Really, it begins the narrative section and dialogue 
becomes the main device for carrying the story forward. You may not realize this, but 60 out of the 85 verses of Ruth are dialogue. It carries the story forward. It's something to keep in mind, even in our text for today. The theme for the rest of chapter 1 is return. Okay? If you're one for marking up your Bible, you may want to circle every time you see return. It's there in verse 6. It's there in verse 7. It's there in verse 8. It's there in verse 10. Verse 11. Verse 12. Verse 15, even in verse 16, where it says, do not urge me to leave you or turn back. Return could be put right there in its place. And then again, twice there in verse 22. The Hebrew word is shuv. And it's a term that's often used for repentance in the Old Testament. Although it's not how it is used in this chapter, okay, It does illustrate it, as we're going to see. As you saw, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth were faced with the decision to stay in Moab or go to Bethlehem. For Naomi, I don't think it was too difficult. But Orpah and Ruth were conflicted by their emotions. And even Naomi, who was urging them to Moab. But it was God's grace working in the heart of Naomi and especially Ruth that led to leaving Moab for Bethlehem. And you know, it always comes down to that, doesn't it, beloved? It's the grace of God. I love what James 4 in verse 6 says, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so I want you to consider with me this morning two grand blessings of this grace that's observed in this text. And I trust that it will lead you to rejoice in your salvation and to follow Christ. That is exactly what it did for me all week long. It was pounded into my own heart to rejoice in the salvation that I have, and out of that, to follow Christ because of His work in my own heart and in your heart. And so I pray that as we work through these two grand blessings that you will be compelled to do such. And the first grand blessing is there in verses 6 and 7. Look what the narrative says. Then she arose that is Naomi, with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited His people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. What's clear there? What's the grand blessing? It's this, Yahweh brought his people, what? Food! (laughs) That's a grand blessing, let me tell you. Yahweh brought his people food. Now, 
It was also Yahweh who brought famine as judgment upon Israel for disobedience, right? There in verse 1. Remember, we talked about that last week. And so if you have not heard last week's message, please, today, go home and listen to that. Because it provides a foundation to what you're going to hear thereafter. But then ten years later, and it is ten years later, when you come to verse 6, God was displaying His grace upon His covenant people. It says there, He visited His people in giving them food. In other words, He graciously came to their aid. They didn't deserve it. But He graciously came to their aid. And this just goes to show you, Who's in charge of all that's going on around us, right? (laughs) Yahweh's in charge. He's making history. It's his story. And so indeed, Yahweh is sovereign. This is a definite theme for this book, along with many others in the Old Testament. God is in control, working behind the scenes to bring about His purposes. Amen and amen to that. Well, this resulted in Naomi and her two daughters-in-law returning to Bethlehem. Now, it appears that Naomi's motive was food. Rather than making things right with her God and restoring fellowship with Him. That seems to be her motive here. And I say this because she later blamed him for her affliction. We see that there in verse 13, which, by the way, is true, right? Didn't the Lord bring about this affliction on her life? You bet he did. Maybe she's even bitter about it. I tend to think she is. But she takes no responsibility for her actions. That's clear there in verse 13 and also in verses 20 and 21. And I would go further and say that Naomi's faith here, I believe, was small. It was weak in the early part of this book. There are other indications of this, especially there in verse 15, when she points both Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth, back to Moab and their gods. Yeah. However, in all of this, God was providentially working out His plan, His purposes, even in the midst of disobedience. Again, I can't tell you how many times when I'm reading through Scripture that God in His grace works out His purposes even when his children, when his people are disobedient. And this is what's going on here. The physical blessing here of food was just a foretaste of the spiritual blessing to come. Though the famine was lifted and God supplied his covenant people with bread in Bethlehem. And remember, what does Bethlehem mean? House of bread, absolutely. And the word for food here is bread. It would be through the line of David 
that the true bread of life would be supplied in Bethlehem. And who's that? Jesus Christ. Yeah. What does it say in John 6 and verse 35? That is your memory verse for this week. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. That's the bigger picture here. And the author of Ruth, which by the way, we do not know who that one is, had a partial vision of this up through David, as well as later Jewish readers. But today we have the fuller vision, don't we? We have a 2020 vision. (laughs) In our present text, we're not quite there yet. But we already stand in awe of God, do we not? Well, I sure do. I remember last week I talked about diamonds on a black canvas. And when a jeweler does that, it just enhances it. And you go, oh, wow, those look so nice. This is a black time in history. It's very, very dark. And God stands out like a diamond in the rough. He is to be exalted because He's sovereignly working behind the scenes to bring about His purposes. Even with the matter of physical food, that's just the beginning to what He's going to do as you move not only through Ruth, but the rest of the Old Testament, into the New Testament. I like what Hubbard said in his commentary. Yahweh's gracious intervention reminds the reader of his intimate involvement in the lives of his people. In Naomi's case, one wonders what ball Yahweh has set rolling by this gift. The plot has begun to thicken. Oh, yes, it has. It certainly has. And beloved, just as those people were blessed with food, God sustains us, right? Let's just talk about His common grace. He provides us with food, does He not? Isn't that a grand blessing that we enjoy by God's common grace every day? In fact, the Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Oh, our God is so gracious. Philippians 4.19 But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You can trust Him. I know there are times when maybe some of you lose your jobs. And you're not getting one right away. Maybe you're in a home where you're, you're just getting by. And you wonder sometimes, is there going to be food on the table? Maybe there's a trial that takes place in your life where you've got to spend money in other places. Yes, those kind of things do happen. But God, in His common grace, does supply. He does promise. In fact, we don't always know what He's trying to teach us in those moments. Let Him have His way and trust Him. He will provide. Holding your space here, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. This is what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. 
starting with verse 25. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. And yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The lesson here in that passage of Scripture is don't be concerned about the physical to the neglect of the spiritual. That's the lesson. Keep your focus on God. Keep your focus on His Word, His will. Follow Him and trust Him to work through your circumstances for your good and God's glory. And really, that's the true blessing. And the message, the lesson that was for Naomi and her daughters-in-law. This is a grand blessing. No ands, ifs, or buts about it. God gives His people food in His grace. He does for us. But keep the bigger picture in mind. It's not just about the physical. It's about the spiritual. What this passage is pointing to. Jesus Christ. Now to the other grand blessing. Which really covers the rest of our text this morning. And that's verses 8 through 18. I'm going to read it again. All right? Follow along. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, Would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her God's. Return after your sister-in-law. 
But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. What do you notice in verses 8 to 18? It's the other grand blessing. Yahweh brought Ruth to what? Faith. That's right. It's Yahweh who brought Ruth to faith. There's no doubt about this in this passage of Scripture. And I want us to capture that. This text is going from the physical to the spiritual. What we see there, especially in verses 16 and 17, is the mountaintop of this chapter. When I read this passage, what I observed here was Ruth's journey to faith. Her testimony, so to speak, of belief in the one true God. I can just imagine Ruth later on in Bethlehem as she's in the marketplaces and people talking with her about who she is and what has happened and opening up her heart and her mouth and expressing her commitment and faith to Yahweh God. It's her testimony. That's what we see here. It's her journey to faith. Yes, Yahweh brought Ruth to faith. And on one hand, this happened in spite of Naomi's four urgent commands to return to Moab. Think about that. You see that there in verse 8. You see that there in verse 11. You see it in verse 12. And you see it there in verse 15. She says to them, go return. And then again, return, my daughters. Again, she says, return, my daughters, go. And then she says, return after your sister-in-law. Yahweh brought Ruth to faith in spite of Naomi's four urgent commands to go back to Moab. Think about that. I'll come back to that. In verses 8 to 10, for example, Naomi started by graciously encouraging them through prayer. Yeah, she's praying for them. She's calling on Yahweh, not their gods, <laughs> the gods of Kamash, to deal kindly with them. The Hebrew word there is kesed, loyal love, grace, just as they did with their husbands, their father-in-law. And to Naomi. Specifically here, Naomi in verse 9 asked that the Lord would give these young ladies rest. That is security through a husband. You see, for a woman in the Jewish culture to be without a husband was a serious thing. 
especially a widow. In Naomi's mind, their chances of getting married were better in Moab. And again, revealing her weak faith. However, Orpah and Ruth here said no. Yes, they were weeping. The emotions were all caught up in this. But they chose to remain with Naomi, at least in verses 8 to 10. But when you come to verses 11 to 14, Naomi changed her attack, so to speak. She then pressed and pleaded while reasoning with them. It's like she was saying, you're foolish to stay with me. You're foolish. And she appeals here to the leveret custom of marriage there in verse 11. And the leveret custom of marriage is discussed by Moses in Deuteronomy 25. And this is where the brother of a man who died childless married the widow and produced an heir. But there's a problem here. (laughs) Naomi lost her two sons. There is no brother. And so she follows up here with three rhetorical questions. There in verses 11 through 13. Right there in the middle of verse 13. What does she say? Have I yet sons in my womb? that they may be your husbands? Verse 12, If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? The obvious answer is what? No, my daughters. (laughs) She answers the question for them. You're foolish to stay with me. As she pointed out to them in verse 13, it is harder or more bitter for me than for you. I'm too old. And yes, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. That is true. Now, what Naomi was saying to her daughters-in-law is common sense. That's what she's doing here. She's pressing and pleading with common sense, especially to women who didn't know the one true God, Yahweh God. Again, they both cried, but this time we see Orpah kissing Naomi and leaving. She gave in to the urging, and you never hear from Orpah again. That's it. There's no more. I know our minds wander and we think, what happened? But the scriptures don't tell us. We don't know. On the other hand, what does the text say of Ruth? Ruth clung to her. Yeah, there's a difference here. Naomi, I should say, Orpah kisses and leaves. But Ruth remains there clinging to her mother-in-law. And so finally, in verse 15, it's not over yet. Naomi took one more stab, so to speak, and pointed 
to Orpah. See your sister there, your sister-in-law? She used a little peer pressure <laughs> to force Ruth to return, all to no avail. What I want you to capture in all of this, beloved, is that even though Naomi prayed, pressed, pleaded, and used peer pressure with these ladies to return to Moab, Ruth remained loyal. Again, common sense would have taken her back. But someone else was working in her heart, and that is Yahweh God. This was a young lady who had every reason to go back to Moab and didn't. She was an idolater. And now she's seeking to be a true worshiper of the Lord God. It reminds me of a couple of passages. I want you to turn with me, holding your space here, to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Verses 44 and 45. These are the words of Jesus. When there is a huge group of people and he's providing bread for them. In verses 44 and 45 of John 6, we read these words. No one can come to me, that's Jesus speak, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets. And they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Jesus is not done speaking yet. He comes back and says it again at the end of the chapter. Look at verses 63 to 65. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Speaking particularly of Judas. And he was saying, For this reason I said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Yes, that's even true of whom in our present text? Ruth. She had every reason to go back to Moab. You have these four urgent commands with the pressing and pleading, the peer pressure, the prayers, all of that coming at her from her mother-in-law and she remains loyal. Again, what does it say in 1 Thessalonians 1.9? For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. <laughs> Paul was talking about the Thessalonians in the New Testament. But this was also true of Ruth. And this leads right into Ruth's conversion there in the rest of verses 16 and 17. Look what it says there. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. I'll tell you, this is one of the best professions of faith in all of the Bible. 
It's very poetic. By her own words here, and also her actions, she was turning her back on her own family, her people, her idolatrous religion, gods, the gods of Kamash, while embracing the land, the people of Israel, and making the one true God her God. In fact, her confession here is so strong that it includes commitment unto death there in the first part of verse 17. This reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37 to 39. You heard it this morning, right? Just listen to these words again. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. That is being a true disciple. Some of you have experienced or lived out that passage of Scripture And what I mean by that, especially in the context leading up to it, is that Jesus said, I came to bring a sword, not peace. You see, when you embrace the one true God, you're turning your back on your way of life that you were leading. Your family may not. Your wife may not. Or your husband may not. Your children may not. But you do. And guess what happens? There's conflict because they don't know God, but you do. The real test of being a disciple is where your heart will be at in the midst of that. If you say in your heart and to them, I know Jesus Christ is my Savior. I'm not leaving Him. He's done so much for me. Let me tell you about Him. Would you expect me to disobey him and do something else? No, I won't. Well, we find Ruth sealing here her confession with a vow of God's judgment upon her if she were to break her commitment there in the latter part of verse 17. And so, yes, she was determined to be loyal to Naomi. But more significantly, to who? Yeah, Yahweh God. It was like she was saying what Paul had said much later in the New Testament. 2 Timothy 1.12 What did Paul say? For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Yeah, he was committed to Jesus Christ. Ruth here was committed, first and foremost, to God. And yes, to her mother-in-law. And you want to know something? Ruth was genuine here. First of all, because of how Naomi reacted there in verse 18. Look what it says. When she, that is Naomi, saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. You see, God's grace 
in Ruth's heart had stood up to all the resistance of her mother-in-law. But I also want you to note what Boaz said in chapter 2. We're going to be getting there, but look at chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Boaz replied to her, that is Ruth, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Yeah. Amen. You know, beloved, salvation is a conversion experience. It involves repentance and faith. They go hand in hand. They're opposite sides of the same coin. I think I talked about this here a few weeks back. In our lives, before we come to know God, we're going one direction. We're living for ourselves. We're thinking for ourselves. We don't take into consideration what God thinks. We're living our lives the way we want. And then, by the grace of God, He touches our hearts, helps us to see our sin, and He turns us around to Jesus Christ. He's our only hope because He's died and rose again. And He puts within our hearts a desire to follow after Him. That's conversion. That's real salvation. That's the message of the Bible. What happened to Ruth has also taken place in the lives of others throughout the centuries, right? Let's just think about the disciples. Remember Peter and Andrew and James and John? What does it say in the Gospels? They left all to follow Christ. They left the fishing business behind their nets. Wow. How about the ones who heard Peter preach in Acts chapter 2, which led to the first church? What did Peter call them people to do? Yeah, repent. Turn around from your wicked way of life and embrace Jesus Christ. How about Paul in Acts 9? What was he doing? He was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. And the Lord got a hold of his heart and turned him around. (laughs) Yeah, that's the grace of God. How about the Thessalonians from Acts 17 and reported in 1 Thessalonians 1.9? I read that passage earlier where it says this, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. That was their testimony. It's Ruth's testimony. How about the reformers of the 15th and 16th centuries who turned their backs on Catholicism for the biblical way of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, and many others. Praise the Lord. But you know, it's your testimony too if you're truly a Christian. We can talk about all those others. But it's true of you as you sit here this morning if you are a true believer. Turn with me, if you would, to Titus. Titus chapter 3. Holding your space once again there in Ruth. Titus. I just love these words. In Titus 3, 3 to 5. 
For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. What a blessing of God's grace, amen? Yes. It's a spiritual miracle of which you and I should be thankful. But so often we take it for granted. I trust this morning when you got up, once again you were thanking the Lord for your salvation. Because there is no way that you would come to Him without Him working in your heart. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. And then all of a sudden, He turned you around by His grace. Wow! What a blessing of His grace. Take that to heart. It's a miracle. In fact, Naomi in Ruth here should have been thankful for what she saw in Ruth. But the Bible says she said no more to her. Man, she should have been thankful. Not just for the physical presence of her daughter-in-law, but for what had happened in her heart there at that moment. But again, this goes back to what? Her weak faith. So may God help you to live out your gratefulness to Him. One of my favorite passages is, is Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul, after thinking about the sovereignty of God in salvation in chapters 9 through 11, he says to these believers, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable in God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. May that be our testimony. Beloved, as you heard this morning, the two grand blessings for Israel and Ruth are ours as well. Food, <laughs> not just physically, although that is true. We experience God's common grace. But more significantly, spiritually, because what we see here is foreshadowed in Christ. The bread of life. The true bread of life. And then also faith. What does it say in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. What's the gift? Salvation. Grace. Faith. It's all a gift. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And so I pray that you see this with your spiritual eyes this morning, that you're thankful for His work in your heart, and that you're committed to God like Ruth. There's nothing that's going to deter you because you truly know Jesus Christ. You're not going to let family member spouse, nothing deter you from 
giving your whole heart to Jesus Christ and serving him. That's what Jesus calls us to. That's true discipleship. I pray that's in your heart this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. What a blessing it is to just walk through this text. There's a lot here. But God, it is clear. These wonderful blessings of food and faith that came to Ruth's heart and life. It's the mountaintop experience of chapter 1. And so I pray that each one here would examine their hearts to relish, O God, in what you have done in their hearts and lives. And may they be committed to you like nothing else. And so, God, I place their hearts in your hands. And may you do what only you can do for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.